The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. And welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret history and little-known fascinating facts about your favorite music, movies, TV shows, and more. We're two guys with too much free time on our hands. My name's Jordan Runtog. And I'm Alex Heigl. <laughs> I love that your intros for yourself have like a tenth of my caffeine level. <laughs> it's like my co-host Alex Heigl's joining us from the waiting room of H&R Block. Ah, ah. That's our dynamic, buddy. Get used to it. Yeah, no, I, I love it. I love it. Uh, and speaking of great buddy-buddy dynamics here, <laughs> that brings us to our topic for today. We're going to talk about Ocean's Eleven, Steven Soderbergh's remake of the 1960 crime caper, which turned 20 years old in December 2021. That is crazy. Yeah, the grim uh, passage of time. I know. It's got to be one of the most beloved movies of the last few decades. I mean, how can you not like this movie? Everyone loves a heist movie. Everyone loves a buddy movie. To me, this is like the sting for our generation, the great mm-hmm. Paul Newman, Robert Redford uh, heist movie. It's the movie that really, I think, for better or for worse, made George Clooney and Brad Pitt sort of the heirs to the old Hollywood mantle, you know, following in the the lineage of people like Cary Grant and Dean Martin and Robert Redford and Paul Newman. And what are you going to say? I mean, Steven Soderbergh's retro touches made this an instant classic that inspired God knows how many people to pursue a lucrative life of crime. Really, when you think about it. <laughs> What do you think about this movie? <laughs> uh, there are so few perfect films. I mean, I you know, I don't know if this is like I wouldn't put this as like an art film, but it's such a goddamn delight. <laughs> you know, it's oh, just it really is. it's yeah. such a it's just such a tightly wound like fun movie. It's one of those things that like I don't know, I saw it when I was like 14 and I was just like no notes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just such a fun, well-done movie. I mean, it's it is very emblematic of like a certain period of the 2000s. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. I, it's weird that you said that about, not weird, it's accurate that you said that about Clooney and Pitt. Clooney is one of those guys who I... I could see him being too cool for you. I, he, too, I, yeah, like, there are reasons I'm doing. That, I'm doing finger guns right now. You can't, I can't see put me. A, I can't put a real finger on why I dislike him and why I love Brad Pitt so much. Do you? I yeah, I do. I, Clooney to me is just, there, there's an s- element of smarm there, but by his like own admission... I mean, dude, he, like, grew up in, like, Nowheresville. He, like, picked tobacco before he was famous. He had a much slower on-ramp to fame than people really give him credit for. Did you know he tried out to be on the Cincinnati Reds in, like, 1977? <laughs> that tracks. I mean, like, yeah, he's just, like, a southern dude who, like, I mean, he literally worked on his uncle's tobacco farm. So, I, yeah, I don't know why I... And, he, and I, Oh, Brother War, that was one of my favorite movies. So, I, I don't really know why I don't like him and I have nothing but, like, unreserved good feelings for brad pitt but um that's anyway those are my hot takes on them um it is a little slick i mean it's very much it's very emblematic of that like you know when you get into that like 2000s era of sort of retro uh slick fetishism of like 
and like the spread collar uh shirts and like uh i i understand those knocks against it but it's it's too likable to count that stuff against it you know i i I sort of on purpose to try to get the other you know the other side of the argument for doing this episode i read a bunch of negative reviews from when it first came out and it was just talking about how you know it was all just a bunch of cliches but they're so well done. They're yeah. perfectly done, yeah. you know? I mean, it, There's that Rick and Morty episode that's like just a spoof of heist movies. They do a rip on Oceans. The, the line that they keep repeating is, you son of a bitch, I'm in. Um, <laughs> which is like, I, when I think of what this, we say throughout the rest of this episode. Yeah, when you think about like a heist movie, you think about, ah, you son of a bitch, I'm in. All right, let's do it, baby. <laughs> well, you son of a bitch, we're going in. <laughs> Here's everything you didn't know about Ocean's Eleven. It's interesting that Steven Soderbergh chose to make this movie because he was just coming off of Oscar nominations for both Traffic and Aaron Brockovich. Mm -hmm. And after making these movies that were really had a lot of social impact, he wanted to make a movie, and this is his quote, with no social value whatsoever. I'm looking at his IMDb, which he would go on to continue to make movies with no social value whatsoever. This is <laughs> I'm going to make a lot of enemies with this episode. I don't. Uh, Steven you're, you're not a Soderbergh fan. He's fine. He's fine. I just don't. I don't buy him as like Fincher. I don't buy him as like Scorsese. But there are people who speak about him in those terms. I want you to read this next quote so I can laugh at it. Uh, yes, Soderbergh said that, you know, coming off of traffic and Aaron Brockovich, he wanted to do a film that gave audiences, quote, pleasure from beginning to the end and a movie that you just surrendered to without embarrassment and without regret. Why did he pitch it in such sexual terms? So Soderbergh, he just well, he wants to make a popcorn movie, basically. He wants to just have some fun. So he sets his sights on remaking this 1960 pseudo-classic, Ocean's Eleven. Before Soderbergh signed on, Brett Ratner was at one point set to direct it. And John Favreau, was, uh, John Favreau offered to write the screenplay, but turned it down. That would have been such a different film. I don't necessarily have any ill will towards Favreau. He's also fine, but... Brett Ratner sucks, and that would have been the joke. What did Ratner do? Uh, Rush Hour. Um, he oh, famously yeah. like torpedoed his own career by. Um, I think he was doing an Oscar segment, some award show segment, and he. They were like, "Well, why aren't you rehearsing?" And he said, "Rehearsals for f- dropped the hard ah. f." Just he's just that he's like McGee. He's part of that just flopping upward school of two thousands directors. <laughs> Thank God this wasn't made by him. Well, Soderbergh was going to take it probably in a very different direction than than Brett Ratner ever would. He was originally going to make it in black and white to really lean into the whole like retro thing, which is weird because the original Ocean's Eleven was in color. But apparently to do it in black and white would have elevated the cost so much that it was prohibitively expensive, which is weird. I would have thought that doing it in color would have been more expensive well this is probably also in the transitionary period where they're only starting to do digital color correction oh yeah because like oh brother is famously one of like the first films that they really did extensive digital post-production work to give it that age and i think the matrix too like the whole that whole film has that like it's shot on film but it's like has that kind of sickly green like cathode ray (laughs) tint to it so i yeah Yeah. i guess that makes sense this is before they could have just done it in after adobe after effects or whatever but it's doubly interesting that Soderbergh chose Ocean's Eleven because, you know, we think of it now as this classic movie because we think of the visuals. You know, we think of the Rat Pack with the the Sands Casino in the background or Sid Avey's really famous photo of the Rat Pack guys in flawless suits around a pool table. And it's almost like the Mandela effect where everyone assumes that the original Ocean's Eleven was this great piece of cinema. When, I don't know, have you ever seen it? It's not that great of a movie. No, I... This is your wheelhouse. My 60s is um, Spaghetti Westerns and... And Cool Hand Luke. And Cool Hand Luke. Yeah, accurate. That's it. I don't do the I don't do the Rat Pack stuff. I'm not a kitsch guy. Yeah. I mean, Ocean's Eleven, it, it, it looks great. Not a great movie. And George Clooney, actually a lot of the people involved with the remake kind of agree. Clooney said that the, the 1960 movie was only beloved because of just 
the cast. Uh, he gave an interview in 2001 to the LA Times, and he said, everyone will say, you know, oh, yeah, Ocean's Eleven, that's one of my favorite films. And I'll always say, have you ever seen it? And he's right. Uh, Julia Roberts said in an interview around the same time, like, she fell asleep trying to watch the original twice, apparently. And and that scans. It's It's not a great movie. But... All this kind of slagging off the original movie pissed off the sole surviving Rat Pack member, Joey Bishop. You know, Joey Bishop, he's the guy who gave uh, Regis Philbin his big break. He had a talk show in the 60s where Regis Philbin basically played the Ed McMahon to his Johnny Carson. And he gave uh, Regis Philbin his big break. I'm going to paraphrase a line in uh, from uh, Knocked Up where Seth Rogen is like, you know what's interesting about that guy? Nothing. <laughs> That's how I feel about Joey Bishop. Well, he was the sole surviving member of, you know, he outlived Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis, Peter Lawford. And so he felt like he had to defend the original movie's honor. And he called out the new Ocean's Eleven remake by saying, give me a break. There will only ever be one Rat Pack. It's a joke. All these guys are doing in the remake is a cheap impersonation of the original Rat Pack. People knew about Frank and his broads, these are his words, and <laughs> Dean and his drinking. They knew that we all partied together. But with this new version, you've got five or six people who never had any association with each other off screen. Uh, that's such boomer <laughs> shit. We did it the best. You you don't didn't do it as well as us. Also, it's not high art, dude. Like, come on. Don't defend the sanctity of rat pack like he's the only one left he feels like he owes it to his late brothers i guess uh, anyway I, it's that becomes so ironic when you talk about that the second like the sequels they made these they, they made the one in italy just because they all wanted to hang out at clooney's you know lake como <laughs> pleasure dome or whatever it is <laughs> uh anyway uh, speaking of George Clooney's Pleasure Dome, I just kind of absently <laughs> wandered through like the relationship section of his Wikipedia page, mm -hmm. and his relationship history is insane. The, the number of people that, that he dated, even just casually, is pretty mind-blowing. Go ahead. Uh, he, he was married to Talia Balsam from 89 to 93, and she was most famous to me as Roger Sterling's wife on Mad Men. Ginger Lynn Allen... Cameron Diaz, Charlize Theron, Lucy Liu, British model Lisa Snowden, Renee Zellweger, hmm. Linda Thompson, who dated Elvis. What? Yeah. Apparently, they dated briefly, I think, in 2006. So that's pretty amazing. Uh, Stacey Keebler, who yep. was with the WWE, I believe. Yep. Kelly Preston, who later went on to marry John yep. Travolta. Travolta. Uh, yeah. He apparently bought her a Vietnamese potbelly pig. Oh yeah, that pig. Max. Yeah, the pig came with him. Like they, he like kept the pig in the breakup. That's like the one celebrity thing I remember about George Clooney is that he famously had like that pig for a long time, like twenty years. He he called it his longest relationship ever. I mean, you know, he's a handsome guy. I bear no ill will to his face. It's, <laughs> it is a good face. <laughs> It's good, good face. face. He's got good a, he's got a good face. <laughs> that's, that's the only De Niro you're ever going to get out of me. This is bad. I'm doing a bad job. <laughs> he's got a good face. <laughs> anyway, getting into the professional associations of George Clooney rather than the personal ones. Segway, nailed it. Uh, <laughs> obviously, one of the biggest, the most star-stuffed casts of in in recent memory um sort of maybe like the ur text for for doing these kind of big prestige things where everybody Ensemble, yeah. where everybody works for scale yeah uh so clooney said and he said this after the fact he said everybody's working below their rate he said if we all get paid what we are supposed to be paying uh we can't make the movie so why don't we all just take a big chunk of the back end, work cheap, and see if there's any money at the end? Which is sort of a disingenuous quote, considering how much money it made. Like, I'm sure they made their their vig back on that. But speaking of overpaid people, who I also love dearly, <laughs> uh, George Clooney and Julia Roberts had not met before they started filming this. She got the script with a $20 bill attached to it with a note from George Clooney that said, I hear you're getting 20 a picture now. And this is a, a joke that referenced Julia Roberts becoming the highest paid actress at the time with $20 million per picture. Coincidentally, she had just starred in Aaron Brockovich with Soderbergh. And uh, she said in an interview with Barbara Walters that it was the only, the first time she had been paid to read a script. That's smooth, Clooney. Smooth. It's smooth, yeah. There is a 
bit of like the fabulously wealthy joking about being fabulously wealthy and like having a fun time being fabulously wealthy to this whole thing. But let's put aside my burning uh, class. I was anger. Say, isn't, isn't that part of its charm to you? Maybe uh, <laughs> I think all of these people are in line for the guillotine, but you know, Clooney and his like Como pleasure dome. <laughs> I welcome your hot takes and your rage. Give it to me. I feed on it. Tweet at me using the hashtag George Clooney's Pleasure Dome. Uh, Bruce Willis was was originally cast as this lead, which I cannot fathom. Uh, He pulled out during scheduling conflicts. He has a cameo in the 2004 sequel. And apparently this is all because George Clooney was not the big deal that he is now. Matt Damon had just done Good Will Hunting, right? So that was his like star making turn. Brad Pitt is obviously, you know, was huge in his like mid 90s world conquering levels of hot. And Soderbergh, you could probably rubber stamp Clooney's career with Soderbergh. Out of Sight uh, was a big thing. Three Kings was a huge thing. Those are 98, 99. And then Oh Brother Where Art Thou is 2000. So yeah, there are like, this was like the stretch that made Clooney bigger than Jesus. Except there's also Batman and Robin in there, which he, I think he has said, like, that was a bad movie that I made and it threw off my career. (laughs) I'll always have a soft spot for that because my mom went on the set of it and got me a piece of, like, the Mr. Freeze when he sprays his freeze action gun thing over the street. (laughs) She, like, chipped off, she was on the set and she chipped off a piece of the ice for me. So I have that in my, like, box of special things that... All, all five-year-olds have. That's awesome. My dad and I went and saw that at a drive-in, and that was, like, the first movie I ever had, like, a conception of a child as being, like, a bad movie. Like, you couldn't... <laughs> I didn't think movies were allowed to be bad, and I, like, turned to my dad at the end of it, and I was like, was that a bad movie, father? And he was like, yes, son, it was. And that was the day I grew up. Um, <laughs> into the sunset. Into the, yeah, fade out with the theme from Cool Hand Luke playing. Another perfect film from this era, The Royal Tenenbaums, also impacted the filming of Ocean's Eleven. Why don't you tell us about that, Jordan? Yeah, there were actually a number of people that were going to be cast in Ocean's Eleven that ended up pulling out because they chose to do Royal Tenenbaums instead. Uh, Luke Wilson and Owen Wilson were going to play the brothers Virgil and Turk, you know, the kind of gearhead guys, but they (laughs) dropped out to be in Royal Tenenbaums. Danny Glover also turned down the role of Frake. Catton, uh, later played, of course, by Bernie Mac, uh, because he was also in Royal Tenenbaums, and Bill Murray was supposed to play a ba- um, just kind of a background lounge singer, kind of a, just like a bit part, but he backed out because he was too busy also filming Royal Tenenbaums. I actually love all of those casting choices. You know, Bill Murray uh, famously did the lounge singer bit on SNL. Oh, oh Nick, yeah. yeah. Star Wars, Wars. nothing yeah, he, but Star Wars. He's, yeah, uh, great. He sings in, he must just have the singing bug because he sings in lost in translation like the following year he does the what's so funny about peace love and understanding and as the run-up to his current project he's been doing like guerrilla style performances through new york like i think he did a surprise set of washington square right and and the carlisle he did a surprise set of the carlisle the luke and owen wilson thing is so funny too because i cannot imagine them being funnier than what's his name scott so-and-so and Casey Scott Affleck. Scott and yeah. yeah. They're so funny in that. Uh, they have such a great dynamic. And Danny Glover's funny, too, when you consider how cuddly and, like, perfect and adorable he is in Royal Tenenbaums. But you also forget Danny Glover was, like, kind of a badass for a, for a little while. He's in Predator 2. I never forgot <laughs> Danny Glover was a badass. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah, sure. I rewatched Predator 2 recently. He's, like, great in Predator 2. He's believable. He's not the size of a house the way that Arnold was, but he's, like... Yeah. <laughs> We should do the Predator franchise, which I want to oh, just yes. make. I just want to make you watch that because it's one of the least Jordan movies of all time. But yeah, it'll be like in the Clockwork Orange when his eyes are pried open. Strap you in for four hours of Predator movies. All right, what's the alternate universe casting for this film? Let's keep going down that rabbit hole. What else you got? Yes, on the topic of Virgil and Turk, the kind of gearhead brothers. Uh, in addition to Luke and Owen Wilson, they were considering Joel and Ethan Cohen, the directors. They were going to try to cast them as those brothers, but they sort of wisely declined. Pass. For the role of Ruben Tishkoff, played by uh, Elliot Gould, they were going to go with Sidney Pollock, which is weird, another director, mm-hmm. right? That's kind of a strange choice. And Dennis Franz from what? NYPD, NYPD Blue? Blue, yeah. That would have been fine, choice. I think, yeah. I mean, but Elliot Gould just completely yeah, he's so good. nailed that. For the role of Terry Benedict, the, the you know the baddie in this movie, Warren Beatty, Michael Douglas, 
and Ray Fiennes were all considered. Too handsome, too short, too British. Respectively, yeah. (laughs) I actually retract what I said about Ray Fiennes because he would have been coming off of Schindler's List and he Mm. is terrifying in that film. And he also plays like a a heavy in um, in Bruges. the English patient? Oh, in Bruges, uh, in Bru- right. And he's also terrifying in that film. So I retract. Ray Fiennes, please don't hurt me. Um, and lastly, speaking oh, of... Oh, yeah. yeah. This would have been bad. For the role of Basher, which went to Don Cheadle, uh, Ewan McGregor was considered. Would have definitely given him the authentic Cockney voice. And not- yeah. Well, yeah. Don Cheadle's taken a lot of knocks for that accent. But uh, apparently he was not... a He was... Go on. This is so fascinating to me. I had no idea about this. I always liked Don Cheadle, and now I don't. Yeah, Don Cheadle's actually uncredited in the first, uh, in Ocean's Eleven, despite having, you know, one of the major roles in the movie. And it was due to a dispute over his billing. He wanted to be above the title alongside George Clooney, Matt Damon, and Brad Pitt. And when this was refused, he refused to be credited at all. And I, I guess this was remedied for Ocean's 12 and Ocean's 13, and he got above the title billing in those. But uh, yeah, he's not credited in this movie. What a baby. What had he been in? I mean, he had bo- Boogie Nights was his like biggest role before this. Um, what was it? So- was he Swordfish? Yeah. He's in, <laughs> he's in Swordfish. He's in, I mean, Traffic, I guess, would have been a big thing, but... Uh, yeah, right before this, he has a similarly uncredited role in Rush Hour 2. But that was because it was a tiny role and not because it was any kind of crediting yeah, thing, I, right? I, yeah, man. And then he, like, it's another three years before he does, like, Crash and Hotel Rwanda. I don't know. What was Too big for your britches, Don Cheadle. Well, there was a rumor that he refused to be credited because he hated his Cockney accent in the movie so much, which isn't true, but would have totally been an acceptable reason because his accent is not great. He's no he's no Meryl Streep. No. Speaking of Meryl Streep, well, we'll we'll get to this later, but with pranks, <laughs> uh, I mean, Brad Pitt and George Clooney are always pranking each other. I guess George Clooney sent Meryl Streep accent lessons on tape <laughs> and signed it from Brad Pitt. Anyway. That's good. So Cheadle, for like all the sequels to Ocean's Eleven, he wanted to just lose the accent because it was so bad, but by that point, it was a bit, and he had yeah. to commit, commit to the to bit. Commit to the bit. Yeah. Um, but I guess in one of the sequels, he, he pretends that he has to like adopt a, an American accent and just uses his own voice for like a big part of the movie. Just so he doesn't <laughs> have to have that awful, like Michael Caine, uh, yeah. impression voice. Oh boy. Um, again, more alternate casting. God, this, this movie went through well, 17 11 people, I mean, 17 11 perspective cast. Yeah. yeah. All right, what's this next one? I love oh, this. Th- this is great. Mark Wahlberg was supposed to play the part of the pickpocket Linus Caldwell. And when fellow Bostonian Matt Damon got it, uh, Wahlberg basically laid into him in the press and just trashed him repeatedly. Uh, can you think of a less pickpockety person than Mark Wahlberg? Like just someone who storms into everything and sucks up all the oxygen in the room and is just like a brash, loud mouth. Like that's... Th- I mean, he's an enforcer. He's not. Pitbucket's got to be slight and quick. Yeah. No, Matt Damon is perfect for that. But yeah, apparently Wahlberg turned it down because he wanted to star in the Planet of the Apes remake (laughs) in 2001. Great decision, buddy. (laughs) And and when he's doing press for it, he said, uh, he was talking about Matt Damon. He says, oh yeah, Damon wants to have been to jail. He says he's tough, which I I never really thought of that as being part of Matt Damon's uh, persona. Boyish charm. Like, (laughs) what? Wahlberg does an interview with Today when he's promoting Planet of the Apes and he's still like really bitter about this even though he turned down the role himself he said oh yeah people tell George Clooney it's great but we all know Ocean's Eleven sucked I made two bad movies instead Planet of the Apes and The Truth About Charlie but doing that was better than sitting with Brad and George telling the press how great everybody is such bitter FOMO energy and then he also goes on to do the Italian job so clearly he had like he wanted to try and like out heist movie them oh yeah that's right Mm -hmm. oh I forgot about that uh, there are some interesting connections between Matt Damon and other cast members in this movie. The most obvious, of course, is with Casey Affleck, uh, Virgil, one of the Gearhead brothers. I think it was Virgil. Mm-hmm. Uh, they worked together in Goodwill Hunting. You know, obviously Ben Affleck's brother. But Matt Damon's movie debut was in Mystic Pizza with Julia Roberts. 
and he's in it. He's like a kid in it. He's probably like, he's got to be like 16, 17. He's the little brother of the rich guy that Julia Roberts' character is dating, and they have a scene together, which is like this awkward family dinner. And speaking of connections between cast members and yeah we're working towards a unified theory of the oceans 11 cinematic universe uh there are four actors and actresses from this movie who appeared in friends clooney pitt roberts all are in special guest episodes but what's more interesting to me is that elliot gould is monica and ross geller's father who does appear throughout the series which i i choose to believe he went into hiding in new york city <laughs> His character from Ocean's Eleven went into hiding in New York City. Um, and there's Godfather connections, too, which, you know, we love a Godfather connection. Oh, I love this so much. Uh, Virgil and Turk Malloy are named after the Godfather character Virgil the Turk Salazzo. And, of course, Scott Kahn, who plays one of them, is the son of James Kahn, who plays Sonny in The Godfather. And Andy Garcia is in Godfather Part 3, which we don't talk about. Um, and... Carl's son, Rob Reiner, famed Spinal Tap director Rob Reiner, directed James Caan in Misery, which we rewatched recently. Misery holds up. Great film. Oh, yeah. Um, and then, of course, there's also the network television Clearing House. George Clooney was obviously in ER for five seasons of that show. Don Cheadle guest stars in the ninth season as a surgical student named Nathan uh carl reiner while we're on the reiners carl reiner snagged this role five days before the shooting for this movie started alan arkin was originally cast in the role of saul bloom but dropped out due to personal reasons and then i wish this had gone through rickles don rickles was an early choice to play that character which would have been hilarious and uh soderbergh wanted the actors to hang out on the set to kind of get that group chemistry vibe going which worked and they would just Apparently, the the cast would just gravitate towards Carl Reiner when they weren't filming to just when they weren't filming to listen to all of his stories. It was like gathering around Grandpa, yeah. I know, yeah. And the scene at his house is apparently one of the first scenes that the entire cast is together, and it has oh, one of Ruben's my, house. Yeah, Ruben's house. One of my favorite lines from this film, which is uh, Elliot Gould walks up to Matt Damon and he's like, um, "You're so and so's kid, aren't you? You having a good time? That's wonderful. Get in the." house <laughs> so funny we're gonna take a quick break but we'll be right back with more too much information in just a moment today i'm gonna give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids how about instead of timeouts time ends time for you to start paying some bills I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing right you got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days. Like literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? Especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. Columbia PFG has you covered with their Castback TC shoe. Its OmniMax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot, say, fighting a fish. Not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet, rocking boat. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear.
Unsurprisingly, for a film based in Vegas, the cast got into some some extracurricular activities. Jordan, why don't you why don't you run that down for us? Yeah, I mean, shooting in Vegas was kind of one of the scariest parts of doing this whole project for Soderbergh because casinos really don't like you filming there, and they usually really only let you do it in like just ungodly late hours, like between, I think, midnight and 6 a.m. during the week is when they they let you shoot, which is a pretty tough time to shoot around. But apparently uh, the Bellagio was more than happy to uh, to let them more or less take over. I think I read something like they were using, like, at any given time, like 30% of the casino floor. They closed down the valet parking. Like, even, like, the high casino rollers had to go use the parking garage, which I guess in <laughs> Vegas is, like, unheard of. I mean, and it makes sense because the movie is basically a two-hour commercial for sure. Las Vegas in general, but the Bellagio in particular. They even choreographed, you know, the famous dancing fountains out front that are, you know, that's in the big finale scene in the movie. They choreographed a special piece of music for the film with those fountains. So the, the Bellagio really worked with them. And... um in addition to kind of having a, basically one giant ad for the hotel, they made a decent amount of money off the cast at the blackjack table. Uh, apparently, uh, George Clooney lost 25 straight hands of blackjack at the, uh, at the table. So that's not good. <laughs> that's good. Um, um, and, but he throw, but he says I, George Clooney has this weird competitive streak. I remember reading on Batman Forever. He and Chris O'Donnell apparently like would get into really competitive games of basketball while filming. I guess anyway. George Clooney says Matt Damon is the best the best uh, gambler. I could see that. Didn't Damon do like some kind of like Counting Cards movie? Oh, good question. Didn't he do Twenty One or something like that? Oh, Rounders. Rounders, yes, yes, yes. Oh, talking about famous movie accents, uh, Malkovich is Russian in that movie. <laughs> Famously awful. I splash the bottle in my club whenever I want. My favorite bad accent, when I worked at VH1, I did a whole article on Leonardo DiCaprio's just completely bonkers accents in various movies. My all-time favorite bad accent is Blood, Blood, Blood Diamond. Diamond. Yeah, Blood yeah. Diamond. Yeah. We're going to get your family back. Down big helicopter, it's... big helicopter, go boom, <laughs> bling bang. Down here, it's bling bang. Bling bang. That's Jesus. that's the best. Come on, come on, Leo. But the Bellagio, yeah, <laughs> very big hotel, Las Vegas. There we go. Yeah, it's nuts how much the Bellagio uh, hotel management played ball with this production. They even let them use security system footage. Like a lot mm. of the the security cam footage in the movie was real from the casino floor, which seems crazy to me i guess i don't know i guess there's not really that too much of a security breach that you can get from just like seeing hallways and stuff but that just seems nuts to me the only thing that was kind of a major letdown for soderbergh was he he asked to film in the casino vault and they were basically like there there is no casino vault that's not that's <laughs> that's something that happens in the movies and soderbergh said it was like in peewee's big adventure when he goes to the alamo and asks to see the basement and I love that. I love that form that there's no basement at the Alamo. So they built their own, but <laughs> they, they built their own vault on a soundstage. And you'll notice it's really distinctive because there are lights on the floor and it's kind of creates this whole weird, like retro futurist look thing going. And that was basically the result of an accident. Soderbergh had looked at the concept design and he had the piece of paper upside down so that the lights that were supposed to be on the ceiling were on the floor. And by the time he realized that he was mistaken, he had just fallen in love with that look. So the set designers built it upside down. And that's why bum, there are lights bum, on the floor bum, in the vault. Bum, ba, da, dum, bum, bum, <laughs> bum, 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 bum. I wish we had the curb theme on, uh, on soundboard. Um, they filmed a great deal of the movie on location in Las Vegas and at the Bellagio. But they created replica versions of the suites on a soundstage. And they were apparently so close to the real rooms that the cast and crew had been staying in that there are often cases of, like, people on the set reaching for, like, the room service menu that was in there and, like, <laughs> going through it as if they were going to call down and order something to eat. And then they realized that they're actually on a soundstage in Hollywood hundreds of miles away. It's like in Dr. Strangelove when um, Kubrick made the inside of that the bomber so accurate that the Air Force, after the fact, was like... Do we have a mole who leaked <laughs> the design for that? They really they thought it was like a security breach. Uh, speaking of food, 
can't talk about Oceans and Brad Pitt without talking about Brad Pitt's heroic eating habit, which is just passed into the stuff of like Hollywood legend at this point. Um, in nearly every scene that Rusty is in, he's eating something. And Pitt has sort of reverse engineered this as an artistic choice because he said <laughs> that this- a boy. Ca- yeah, amen. He said this character was so busy that they'd rarely be able to eat. So he was like, well- you know, they would just, he would just be snacking all the time. But it plays off at the end of the film because Rusty's like eating like a big greasy burger and he gets heartburn. You like, you see him like pound his chest and burp and then tosses the burger. And <laughs> I I just remember this in like Fight Club where they talk, I think Edward Norton is like, he said something about like Brad Pitt's eating ability is heroic. And on that film particularly, like, you know, he's has like no fat on his body throughout that film. Right. And Edward Norton's like, I was sitting there starving myself and working out constantly. And Brad Pitt was just posted up at the craft service table, just eating the whole film and not gaining a single pound. Infuriating. When did the whole Brad Pitt is always eating in movies thing? So was it Ocean's Eleven was the beginning of that or? I don't know. I, you know, the, um, those Pulitzer candidates at Ranker have assembled a list of all of the eating choices that he's made in his films. I think I remember coming up in Moneyball, like he's just always eating in Moneyball, like French fries. But somebody had said that Assassination of Jesse James, he's like horking food down just almost every film, apparently. But the real record in this <laughs> is in that scene when they're watching uh, Rusty and Linus or Julia Roberts' first appearance, right? When she comes down the stairs. Yeah. Rusty is eating a shrimp cocktail, and throughout the course of this filming, he ate 40 shrimp, which is a lot of goddamn shrimp. <laughs> just for that one scene, in, in the one, so in one afternoon, he ate 40 shrimp. I, I was just reading another uh, another bit, I guess, John Cena in Suicide Squad, his character eats an empanada, and he made the choice to just eat it in one take, and like, one, like literally cram an entire empanada into his mouth, and they shot it like 30 times, so he ate something like 30 empanadas while filming that. <laughs> um, which is, again, just another Cool Hand Luke callback of George Kennedy being like, nobody can eat 50 eggs. My boy says he can eat 50 eggs. He can eat 50 eggs. Brad Pitt can eat 40 shrimp. That's got to be like six pounds. Man's gut can't hold that. <laughs> and now, time to my favorite segment of too much information that longtime listeners of the show will recognize. I'd like to bring you down to a place I like to call the Julia Roberts Corner. The Julia Roberts foot fetish corner. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 this, it's strange that this is what episode four, and we've already had two Julia Roberts feet sections. Uh, I, I'm sorry that to, this is not. You know who's not sorry is, about that is Quentin Tarantino. He's at home ah, listening to this, rubbing his hands together. No. Uh, <laughs> Julia Roberts filmed all of her scenes for this film in just two weeks, which is, you know, she's not in it that much. She doesn't pop in until 45 minutes into the movie, which Soderbergh says was an artistic choice because there is so many, there's so many character introductions happening. I guess he was concerned that people, and this is pre-social media, so our attention spans were stronger back then, uh, (laughs) but he did not have faith in the viewers that they'd be able to keep all of these people, keep track of all these characters. And it's That is a lot, It is, yeah, it's a bit, you know. So much going on. But apparently in that scene when she's descending the staircase, she's barefoot, uh, which would have been, you know, it makes sense. It would have been hard to walk down a spiral staircase in high heels. And apparently 20 million a picture will buy you the right to film all of your scenes barefoot (laughs) because she was just, she's, when any scene when she's filmed from the waist up, she is barefoot. She was also barefoot throughout her entire role on the filming of Hook. And during that, she had a dedicated foot attendant on hand to give her foot rubs. Um, was it foot rubs or just just like exfoliant or I don't know whatever it is that you do to keep your feet looking good yeah I don't I also don't know my feet hurt all the time the funny (laughs) the funny thing about that is 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 it Carl Reiner or um, Elliot Gould who says like when they're talking about Terry Benedict and and she says oh Tess is too he's too tall for she's too tall for him she's 5'9 Andy Garcia is 5'10 so I don't know make of that what you will Um, I'm 5'10 does that mean that I'm not tall enough to date? Somewhere in the multiverse, I am dating Julia Roberts, and I am only 5'10". So I I, I, I still believe, Jordan. <laughs> uh, all right, let's get into this, this prank roundup. You can't talk about this. You can't talk about any George Clooney film without getting into all of his rakish pranks. So let's do this. Yeah, we said earlier that Julia Roberts was only in the set for about two weeks, which 
really is probably for the best because it seems like Clooney and Brad uh, and their compulsive pranking made her life a bit of a living hell. <laughs> Sometimes they left 5 a.m. wake-up calls for her when she didn't need to be on set until, like, noon. She even claimed that she was afraid to go into a room at night for fear of booby traps or some <laughs> kind of prank. Uh, and, and, you know, obviously she pointed to Clooney as being the ringleader and the instigator of all this stuff. Although she was very diplomatic doing interviews for this and saying that she bore no ill will towards anybody. This isn't really a prank, but in the credits for the movie, they credit Julie Roberts with the words, and introducing, which is a production joke because they really only do the, you know, introducing thing for someone's first ever on-screen role or their first big role. And by the time Ocean's Eleven came out, Julie Roberts had been a star for a decade mm-hmm. and was, at, like we said, the highest paid actress in history and already an Oscar winner. So that was just them being cheeky, uh, <laughs> disrespectful, if you want to view it a different way. But she got um, her, she got hers, though. Yeah, so the whole prank thing really escalated during the sequels of this movie, and I guess when they got to the hotel they were staying at in Rome for Ocean's 12, she, like, lugged her suitcase to her room, which is kind of endearing that she carries her own yeah. suitcase at that stage. I like that. But it was, like, it was super, super heavy, and her shoulder killed, and by the time she got to the room, she opened it up, and it had been stuffed with, like, lead weights and dumbbells (laughs) and like a bronze statue and she said she almost burst into tears and apparently Clooney misfired he was intending to do that to Brad Pitt and got the suitcases mixed up but yeah Julia Roberts got her revenge on Clooney she didn't go into specific details but she mentioned that it involved itching powder and neosporin Mm -hmm. which which sounds vindictive yeah Yeah. better left to the imagination yeah But yeah, as you may have imagined, the real prank war was played out between Clooney and Brad Pitt, probably fueled by the keg of Guinness that Clooney had installed in his dressing room. And some of this whole, you know, competitive spirit made it into the film. You know, the sort of the verbal sparring when Clooney gets out of prison at the end, you know, he's in his tux and Brad Pitt says, I hope you were the groom. I love that. That's so funny. And Clooney fires back. Ted Nugent called. He wants his shirt back. That was that was improvised. Is that ground zero for that joke? What was the construction of of the so-and-so called they want their such-and-such back? Oh, it has to predate that. That's like... That I, I could I think there's been scenes of like David Spade doing his Hollywood Minute thing on SNL oh. where he was talking about that stuff. I, I could I bet you that's like a lot older than this, but but still well played. Yeah. Oh, here you go. Rolling Stone in a ranking of the best Saturday Night Live cast members credited David Spade with that joke format. Wow, I didn't realize he actually created that. I just remember him doing it. Wow. Good for Spade. It wasn't he the source of the Eddie Murphy feud on SNL? Yeah, like he when, uh, he murdered uh, he murdered him live on air. He murdered Eddie Murphy <laughs> savagely. I think it was I remember this exact joke. It was either after Boomerang or Vampire in Brooklyn, like two legendary bombs. Right after one, right after the other, if I'm remembering correctly. But they just he just put up a picture of Eddie Murphy and said, "Look, kids, a falling star." <laughs> <laughs> which ouch and uh yeah it, it, eddie murphy took that to heart and did not come back to that show for years till the 40th anniversary or 45th yeah. or whatever one was a couple of years ago 40th yeah, yeah. anyway <laughs> this is maybe my favorite prank brad pitt had recently bought a prius when they were filming oceans 11 <laughs> and yeah oh and clooney had bought a bumper sticker in the shape of a of a weed plant that said F cops <laughs> and he put it on the back of his car. <laughs> and he and Clooney said and I think he gave an interview to Vanity Fair and he was like, Yep, no way you're not getting arrested with that. But Brad Pitt can still dish it back, though really nowhere near as good as Clooney. He once convinced Italian shopkeepers when they were filming Ocean's 12 that George Clooney insisted on being known as Danny Ocean. And um that's really it, actually. Now that I think about it, that's really it's a, it's a pretty tame. Because this, I mean, I was saying earlier, Clooney sent Meryl. I guess was did Brad do a movie with Meryl Streep, or maybe it was just unprompted. But George Clooney <laughs> sent Meryl Streep a DVD of like from a dialect coach and signed it as though or from Brad Pitt. Yeah, and he also sent Tom Cruise and other celebrities pitch letters for like various bad projects and also signed Brad Pitt's name. Oh, this is so funny. Do you know what the text of the letter actually was? Like the, the pitch letters? Yeah, according to No. I mean, I this is according to Pop Sugar. Apparently he stole stationery from Brad Pitt at one point. 
with either his production company credit or just from the desk of Brad Pitt, which I think is probably funnier. <laughs> with, a, with a little like Al Hirschfeld like look of his yeah. face on it. Yeah. So uh, George Clooney sends Meryl Streep this letter on Brad Pitt stationery because she was going to be doing the Iron Lady, and this oh. is and 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 this is after Brad Pitt did Troy. So it says the note read Wait, Iron Lady was was Margaret that was the Margaret Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher movie, right? and and yeah. and I guess Brad Pitt's doing like a pseudo British Greek ac- by way of Greece accent in like sword and sandals accent from in Troy and the, the this letter read I hear you're going to be doing the Iron Lady soon this guy helped me with my dialect in Troy so I thought this would help <laughs> <laughs> Oh that's so good but according to Clooney, at least, the best is yet to come. He said that, uh, he gave an interview where he said that, I'm working on a prank that will end Brad's career. <laughs> if you take the time, you're willing to sit on this one for a couple of years and just plant the seed. There's no rush. He's going to frame him for killing the queen. <laughs> As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days. Like literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? Especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. Columbia PFG has you covered with their Castback TC shoe. Its OmniMax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot, say, fighting a fish. Not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet, rocking boat. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. All right. Well, moving out of the the world of the um, no, I don't have a segue for this. Talk about the- <laughs> out of the prank and into the pinch. Yes, we're Ooh. going into the the science part of Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, Steven Soderbergh really wanted all the devices in this movie to be based on things that were possible, and that's sort of the case with the pinch, the phenomenon that knocks out all the lights on the strip, and the mechanism that Don Cheadle's character uses to knock out Las Vegas's power is based on a device called the Z pinch, which creates a burst of energy. I think it's X rays by using a magnetic field that 
pinches a column of charged gas particles. And the production designer, a guy by the name of Phil Messina, later said that they contacted scientists on the internet and started talking to people on all these really high-end scientist forums and posed all these design questions. And they actually even visited a lab in Northern California that had a real Z-pinch, and they brought back photographs and diagrams. This feels like the setup to some, like, another heist movie. It's, oh, yeah, we're making a movie where we're we use this, like, really destructive energy force. Can you tell us how you do that? Like, <laughs> can you give us a lot of pictures of this device, please? Like, but um, apparently that's what they did. They got what they needed, and they designed a somewhat reasonable facsimile of this real-life device. But it, it strays from reality in a number of ways. One, the Z-Pinch is much too big to fit in the back of a van, you know, like Basher had it. Yeah, of course. Um, and you need a lot more power than a couple of car batteries, which is what Basher had. And even with the power source from an actual Z-Pinch, it's not enough to knock out all of the lights in town. I mean, it's basically barely enough to knock out power from an electronic device from across the room. The only thing capable of knocking out a city's power is a real nuclear explosion. Isn't that the plot of Goldeneye? He wants to use an EMP to, like, knock out the world's credit ratings and, like, bring everyone back to zero or something? Sounds like a very low-risk Bond. Uh... <laughs> well, it's it's also the plot of, uh, that's it, you know, taking it back to Brad Pitt's torso in Fight Club. That's what he does in Fight Club, right? He bombs the credit card people. Speaking of explosions... <laughs> I can't tell if these transitions are endearing or annoying, so we'll please find tweet out. at us. Uh, yeah. What, what was the hashtag we used earlier? Um, Doesn't matter. Let's coin a new one. Using the hashtag introducing Julia Roberts. Um, famously, you will remember that they watched this demolition of, the, of a hotel in Vegas being blown up. Uh, imploded? It's Ruben's Hotel. Yeah, yeah it's, it's Ruben's, Ruben's hotel. hotel. That's why he hates uh, right, Terry. Terry Benedict. So they had a hotel called the New York, New York Hotel and Casino being blown up. But this was, it felt to be in poor taste in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. And also the image just being a little too, a little too close to, close to the bone. And Yeah, the uh, hotel looks like the New York skyline. There's a bunch of yeah. you know, very famous buildings there. So yeah, bad, bad look. And if it was released... Uh, something like three months after 9-11. Yeah. Uh, not good. So they just put CGI'd a, a new backdrop in with a, the fictional hotel called the Xanadu, which I'm sure has some kind of reference as a significant callback to that famous film. And yeah, I guess if you're like this kind of guy, you can go and watch the pre-9-11 version of that sequence on the DVD and Blu-ray. Seems weird, but if you're a <laughs> building demolition completist, go nuts. It's out there. Um, in happier news, probably my favorite sequence of this film was actually improvised. It's the post heist sequence. My introduction to Debussy, um, that mm. beautiful scene, uh, at the Bellagio fountain set to Claire de Lune. And it was going to be kind of like a usual suspect sort of thing where they're just like doing a walk down the street and they kind of peel off. I think that's um, how the original one ended, if I remember. I think that was how it was, just on the sidewalk and they each kind of went off, yeah. I think. And Soderbergh says he couldn't figure out how to stage it. So he went and went for a walk by the Bellagio fountain to clear his head. And there and then the scene came for him. And he just told the guys to just line up however they wanted and leave when they wanted. And that's that's how they did it. I just love that scene. It's so it's so uh, it's great, evocative, and yeah. Carl Reiner's face. He, he pull off one last big con. He didn't think he had it in him, but he oh that I mean that was great. His character arc in that in the beginning, thinking that he you know he checked out, he's retired, yeah. he's done. You son of and, a bitch, I'm in. Yeah, <laughs> rising to the occasion. Yeah. This is actually making me like Soderbergh more, at least personally. There's so many little Easter eggs to like the film, the history of film in this. You know, the, the code that Damon punches into is 1138, which is a tribute to George Lucas's first film, THX 1138, which at this point is probably more famous for the sound system named after it than for being like an actual film. Uh, that Dolby, was named after that movie? Dolby THX, yeah. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, Lucas founded it. 
Uh, the wig Brad Pitt wears when he's in disguise is uh, apparently the same wig used by Mike Myers during rehearsals for Austin Powers. I the one thing that this film stretches my belief for is that late '90s, early 2000s, Brad Pitt is just wandering around this hotel and no one spots him. I mean, light bends around that man's jawline, and people are just like, "Oh, that guy, he just fades into the background." Anyway, uh, Soderbergh does the classic Hitchcock cameo. You know, he's one of the thieves who bombed the the vault. Um, so he is in there. I don't know which one he is. This is a weird thing that you brought up here. I don't understand why. I'd like to ask you about it. In the no cameras in this room scene, Clooney's lines were written on men's stomachs. Yeah, it's the scene where he's basically being roughed up by the, I think his name is like Punisher Bruiser. or something. Bruiser, yes, that's right. Yeah, I guess, I, I don't know if the scene was written in the last minute and he didn't have time to learn his lines or what, but apparently uh, his lines were written on, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, just like, was there, a, there's a paucity of cue cards going around Vegas at the time? Like, you didn't have dr- I, a dry erase board on hand? <laughs> I mean, the only thing I do know about this scene in a little more detail is that, I guess, just as a joke, the moment when Bruiser, who's this, like, nine-foot-tall giant mountain of a man, yeah. walks in, was supposed to walk in, they got the smallest stagehand on set, this, like, <laughs> five-foot-one guy to come walk through the door, and everybody laughed, and they reshot the scene. A good but, time was had by all. A good time was had by all. I don't know why Clooney's lines are written on men's stomachs. Um, <laughs> we could potentially cut this. But we won't. Okay. So this line that Andy Garcia says, if you should be picked up buying a $100,000 sports car in Newport Beach, I'm going to be supremely disappointment. That is a, an inside baseball reference to the kidnapping of casino. Is he a casino magnate? A, a Vegas Vegas big wheel Steve Wynn? The casino rag magnate, I would say. Okay. I don't know. I, this is a late stage admission. But the only time I've been to Vegas was like a two hour layover in the Vegas airport, which is surely one of the lower circles of hell. Anyway. The kidnappers were caught trying to spend some of the ransom money for Steve Wynn's daughter in Newport Beach, attempting to buy a very expensive car in cash. I just did a little reading about this case. These men were not Mensa candidates. Some of the phone call <laughs> records were traced to payphones in a local bar called Sonny's Saloon and a Carl's Jr. So yeah, you're conducting your uh, Vegas kidnapping ransom calls from a Carl's Jr. You might be a redneck. Where else are you going to do it, though? I mean, you can't do it yeah, in you know, a true. private place because they can trace you to it. <sighs> I guess. Um, Didn't the Menendez brothers also buy like a Rolex, a Lamborghini, and one of them bought like a fried chicken franchise restaurant or something after, after yeah. they killed their parents and got all this money? Good Lord. Anyway, that's fun. Well, speaking of patricide, I, that tame it. <laughs> Transitions have really failed us for this one. <laughs> this whole episode, really. So it's pretty unlikely that we're going to get uh, a sequel with the with the Ocean's Eleven cast or the. I almost said the original Ocean's Eleven, but you know, the <laughs> Clooney, Brad Pitt led. I don't know, dude. Cast. The way Disney's doing things, they're going to do- give us a digitally de-aged, like a, a a fake CGI Rat Pack sooner rather than later. Well, until that day comes, we almost got a moment where Matt Damon's character had a cameo in the Ocean's 8 movie, which had an incredible cast of actresses, Kate Blanchett, Sandra Bullock. Sandra Bullock, I think she played Danny Ocean's sister, right? She was Debbie Ocean. Um, and you had Kate Blanchett, Sarah Paulson, Anne Hathaway, Mindy Kaling, Helena Bonham Carter, Rihanna, and the comedian Aquafina. What an amazing cast. And they were going to have Damon's character, uh, Linus, appear and just as kind of, you know, to link this movie with the, uh, with the, to keep it in the Clooney universe <laughs> as, you know, we all should, we all should be so lucky to live in the Clooney universe. <laughs> but uh, apparently Matt Damon had given comments to uh, the Hollywood Reporter in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein scandal that I forget exactly what he said, but they were assuredly ill-advised. Yeah. And in the midst of the backlash, they wrote his uh, his cameo out of the movie. Uh, all right. Give me your summation of from this winding, transition-free <laughs> Ocean's Eleven bit. Yeah, I think, I think we pretty much have done Ocean's Eleven. And, you know, it, it, we were talking about this earlier. It's It's sort of impossible not to love this movie. And just because of... 
I don't want to say that there's a message in this movie, but, you know, in Las Vegas, there's a sense that there's the system in place that's designed to screw you. Mm-hmm. Um, not even in Vegas, in, in the world, really. Uh, so everyone loves to see, you know, Vegas get screwed back. Mm-hmm. Steven Soderbergh gave an interview when he said, when I say Ocean's Eleven is a throwback to an earlier period in cinema, I mean that the movie is never mean. It's never gratuitous. Nobody's killed. Nobody's humiliated for no reason to the butt of a joke. It's probably the least threatening film I've ever made in a way. That was conscious on my part. I wanted it to be light entertainment, and I didn't think darker or meaner ideas had a place in a movie like this. I wanted it to be sparkling. Oh, I love that. Slowly cue in Claire, yeah, Claire the, the fountains. Yeah. yeah. All right, Jordan and I are going to slowly walk off to uh to a a, a beautiful <laughs> a beautiful uh, montage in front of the Bellagio. Piano piece. We're flying to the we're flying to the Bellagio. Can you charge that to iHeart? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh boy. All right, folks. Thank you for joining us. This has been too much information. I'm Alex Heigel. And I'm Jordan Runtog. Thanks for spending time with us. See you next time. Too much information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs) Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Are the old world picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences with fewer people and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.